Well, if you have a Bible, if you'd open your Bible to James 2. James chapter 2. And we're going to start reading in verse 14. And James writes, What does it profit my brethren, though a man say he has faith and has not works? Can faith save him? That faith save him is what he's saying. And if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, well, notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body. What does it profit? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Yes, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Well, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? And seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So you see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. We've been on this just about two months, not quite two months, in the book of James, and we've been emphasizing that the book of James is about faith, not a lifeless, dull, doctrinal faith that has no impact on our lives. He's talking here, and he's talking especially today, about a living faith. And that faith, through the book of James, is seen and demonstrated in our relationship with God and with others. And it's a practical faith that he talks about. So he says this living faith, if you have that a true living faith in you, you will be able to endure trials. And the motivation for that, we said, back in chapter 1, verse 12, was you have a love for God. Another thing that's going to show us a test we can have to see whether our faith is living or not is we will be doers of the word and not just hearers only. That is a big deal. Doers of the words, we're going to put it into practice. And the last thing we looked at last week is if you have true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you really have exercised faith in him, you will not be prejudiced. You will not be partial towards rich people and ignoring poor people. You will have love and concern for all alike, any of those that have a need, whether they be rich or whether they be poor. And that's the kind of faith that James is preaching about. This is really like a sermon we're hearing. If you read it, it kind of hits you like a sermon. Today, he's going to continue to examine our faith. The theme of verses 14 to 26, the last half of chapter 2, it's not hard to discover. James doesn't leave us in doubt. He announces it three times within the verses we just read in case we missed it. What it is, is faith, if it's by itself, if it's not accompanied by actions, is dead. And look, we see that, just look real quick, we see that in verse 17. He says, even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, he says. And look down in verse 20, he says it again. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And then we have it in the very last verse that we read, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. That's the theme. We could stop right there, really. 
<laughs> but that's the theme of what we're going to talk about today. James, he's got his typical, straightforward, kind of abrupt style. He, he kind of has a way he just brings this whole subject out of the blue. What he does is he wants us to think about this, that faith without works is dead. But he doesn't just totally smack us in the face with the idea. He kind of eases into it. He doesn't say, hey, hey, look, Bubba, <laughs> you got a big mouth with nothing to back up what you're saying with what you're claiming. And I know your heart's dead. He doesn't say it that way. And I'm not really impressed. So how does he start it off? Look at what he says in verse 14. So he brings it in the form of a question. He wants us to think about what he's saying. He says, what does it profit? Or what good is it? Or that word can mean what advantage is it? And he says, my brethren. He's not against the people that he's talking to. He's just saying this out of concern because he doesn't want his readers, his listeners, the churches he's writing to, he doesn't want them to end up like the person that he's talking about, that he's going to be describing. There's a care there. So he says, what good is it, my brethren? Though a man say he has faith and has not works, can that faith save him? He's describing, first of all here, a man that says that he has faith. Isn't that what it says? But his works and his deeds don't back up what he claims. And that word says it's in the present tense. So it's a continuous thing that he's claiming. He's claiming he has faith, claiming he's a Christian. But James is saying, but his works don't back up what he's saying. He doesn't say that the man has faith, does he? What does he say? He says the man says that he has faith because faith is an invisible substance. The only way to test that claim is to see are there works that prove it. And James says, I have a man here that claims he has faith. He says, I'm trusting Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but he says there are no works or deeds that agree with what he's saying, that agree with his claim. His behavior contradicts what he says. And he asked the question, can that kind of faith, you're saying whatever, you're making this boast, you're making this claim, but your life doesn't live up to it. He says, that's what he asked there at the end of verse 14. He says, can that faith save a person? And that's serious. And the answer that's implied by the question is what? No, it's not going to save you. That is a critical question. It really is for all of us to consider because it's the same question, but it's not put in a question form. It's the same thing that basically Jesus is saying it's a familiar verse in Matthew 7, verses 22 to 23. And he says this, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, they've made a claim. Have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out demons, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And he says, And then I will have to profess unto them what? I never knew you. Depart from me. The reason is, is your claim, calling me Lord, doesn't match up to how you live. And he has to say, you say you knew me, but I never knew you. And he says, you have to depart from me because you're workers of iniquity. Your works don't line up with what you're saying. And that's a terrible thing, isn't it? It's a terrible thing to have to hear that. And it's a serious thing for all of us to think about. Because he says many, that's going to happen to many in that day. Well, he goes on in verses 15 to 16, and he gives us an illustration to help us understand what he's saying. And look what it says. He says, if a brother or sister be naked, destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, and be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body. He says, what does it profit? 
But he talks about there's a fellow believer, somebody, a brother or sister that's in your church who doesn't have enough to meet their daily needs. They're going hungry, they're poorly clothed. And one of you, he says, and he says it that way, he's writing, he's wanting to kind of shock them. He's like, in one of you, this is what you do. This is how you treat them. And the people are like, me? Are you talking to me? And James is like, well, yeah, if it applies to you. But he says, one of you says to them, well, God bless you. Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. And that was just a kind of a standard Jewish farewell. It's kind of like a prayer. May God's peace be with you and may he supply all of your needs. Be ye warmed and filled. And that person is acting like and they're claiming to have great sympathy for the sufferer, aren't they? But James says true sympathy has more than just words, doesn't it? It has hands and feet that go along with it. He says, you don't give them what they need. You give them not those things which are needful to the body. He's like, you say one thing, you don't give them what they need. He's like, what good is it? That's what he says at the end of verse 16. What does it profit? What good is it? So all you did was proclaim your good wishes, but you never helped them. So what he's saying is, his point is, it's just an empty profession, isn't it? There's no real sincerity in it. The sympathy that you act like you have, you say that you have, it's really dead. It's just not there, is it? The point is you would have helped him out. It's what he's saying here in verse 17. He says he's making an analogy. He's the, he says it's the same thing with a professed faith that has no works. He's saying that faith is not a living faith. It's dead. You say it's there, but it is not there at all. That's what he's saying. So He's not contrasting faith and works. That's not his point. What he's contrasting here in this whole section is he's contrasting a living faith with a dead faith. It's like this. Let's say your sweeper could talk. And let's trust it doesn't. But you never know. That'll probably be the next thing they'll come out with, a talking sweeper. But what if your sweeper told you it had power? And you push the on button, and when you do that, there's no light. The motor doesn't run, and there's no suction coming out at the end. You'd think something's not right, wouldn't you? That's what I'd think. And you'd look and see, well, the thing's not plugged in. And I'd be like, you lying sweeper. You know, you told me you had power, and you're not plugged into the source. Not plugged into the source. And that's the way it is with true faith. True faith, a living faith, the reason it's living and true and there's action and works is because it plugs us into the source. We become, through our faith, united to Christ. And then when that happens, when we exercise faith and a person truly trusts and commits themselves to Christ, a literal spiritual connection happens. Spiritual life is flowing from him into us. And that's what happens. So when there is no real faith, when there's no commitment or trust, guess what doesn't happen? It's never plugged into the source. A person isn't. And so there's no life. There's no power. There's no fruit. They remain how? How is every person born into this world? Was it say in Ephesians 2? Dead in their trespasses and sins. So they remain dead. And that's what James is saying. You who profess to have faith, if it has not works, he's saying your faith is dead because it's by itself. And there's a lot of people, they make claims. 
Because just confessing things doesn't mean it's going to happen or it's true or it's even faith in your heart saying it. You can say a lot of things you just don't really have in your heart. And people will confess, I'm saved, I'm healed, I'm delivered. But claims of faith, James saying, if there is real faith present, a living faith, there are going to be works that follow. It has to happen. So we're not talking, though, I hasten to say, we're not talking about adding works to your faith. Think about it like this. If you put a living seed, a living seed in the ground and plant it, eventually fruit is going to come. It can't help itself. If you put a dead seed in the ground, you're not doing anything. You're not proving anything by taking a plastic blueberry bush and putting it on top of it and saying, see, there's my works. So we're not adding works to faith. What he's saying is true faith will produce works, is what he's saying. It will reveal its life by its deeds. So he's quoting his brother in a lot of ways. That's Matthew 7, 17. Every good tree brings forth good fruit. It can't help but do that. But a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. And he said, you'll know them by your fruits. And that's all of us. The works will follow. If that living faith is there, if you're connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, if his Holy Spirit is in you, living in you, you can't help but produce life and power and fruit. It has to be there. If it's not there, there's problems. And so in verse 18, James moves on and he's refuting the argument in verse 18 that a person can have faith that will save them without having works. Look what it says. He says, yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. And he says, well, show me thy faith without thy works. He says, and I will show thee my faith by my works. James is saying, go ahead if you can, show or demonstrate that you have faith without any deeds to match it. His thing is, you can't. You can't. It's impossible. He says, the fact that your deeds don't match your words, all that does is prove that there is no faith is all that that proves. He says, on the other hand, I can demonstrate my faith by what I do. When the Lord commands me, let's just say, to go witness, to go evangelize, to share the gospel, he says, I hear that and I obey that, and that living faith in me that he's my Lord, I've committed myself to him as my Lord and Savior, both, so I'm going to obey him. That's how my living faith is demonstrated. And I share the gospel with people. Don't hide my light. That's the way it works. So we demonstrate our faith by what we do. So that's the challenge. Isn't that a challenge? Do we merely talk is what James is saying about what we believe, or do we really demonstrate it by what we do? Jesus said, why do you call me? This is Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not the things which I say? If you have a true living faith, and you're united to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will have obedient lives. That's really what it's all about. And he moves on here in verse 19 and kind of comes at it another way. Because he tells us in verse 19 here that we can have pristine, correct theological doctrine and still not have saving faith. There's a great danger in substituting theology and doctrine for obedience. Because he asked this, look what he says in verse 9. He says, you believe that there is one God, and that is an important truth, isn't it? That's the Shema. 
Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. And James says, you believe that? He says, man, that is great. Look what he says. He goes, that's great. He says, you do well. He says, but listen, he's saying theology is important. And I would say it's critical because you want to talk about cults and groups that get off an error. They get off an error. It all starts with their theology. So he's not downplaying theology by any means. He's not making fun of it or belittling it. But he's saying here, that's where the demons stop, though, isn't it? You say the demons also believe that. Look what it says. You believe that there is one God. He says, you do well, but well, the devils also believe that and they tremble. That's where they stop. He says, you can't stop there because that's where they stop. And if you stop where they stop, you're going to go where they're going to go. It's not a nice place. That's the way it is. I think the demons are probably the most conservative, correct theologians in existence. Probably better than any man on this earth. They know the Bible's true. They know it's true. They know. They're not trying to explain away their judgment in hell like a lot of the theologians today are. That's a big thing is denying the reality of hell. Oh, they're smarter than that. You know how we know that? Because it says they do what? They tremble. The word means to shudder, to bristle. Like when you see something that terrifies you and your hair stands up on your arm, it's saying that's what they do. <laughs> so when the reality of the eternal God and his holiness and their judgment, when they are face to face with that, that is their reaction. That's the way they react. And in a way, James is saying, look, they don't have faith, but at least they have that much of a reaction. He's almost implying, do you even have that much of a reaction? Because they tremble. That was me before salvation. It really was. I believe that the Bible was true. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ walked on this earth. I believe he hung on the cross for the sins of the world. And I also believe that anybody that didn't put their faith and trust in him was going to perish in hell. I even knew that much as a Catholic from watching Billy Graham on TV. I trembled. I did. I was afraid of dying. We were talking about getting drafted in the war. I thought, man, if I get drafted, I'm afraid of dying. I was. I trembled at the thought of judgment day. I respected Billy Graham when I'd hear him preach, and I'd watch him. I'd cry. Man, I'd go right back out and do whatever I was doing before, though. I prayed when I was in a lot of trouble, and did those prayers get answered? They didn't get answered, but I did pray. So I believed the Bible. I believed it was all true. I would pray, listen to preaching, recognize that, but I was still a devil. I was still a devil because why? I was unwilling to do this with what I knew was right. I was unwilling to trust and obey. Knowledge is an important ingredient to faith. You have to have knowledge. And then once the knowledge comes, you have to believe the knowledge. But if you stop there, you've stopped where the devil stops. Because the next step is you have to have obedient trust added to that. Your will, your will has to be given to the Lord. That's what it's talking about. For me, before I was a Christian, I knew everything was true. I knew everything was right. I knew where I was headed. I was just like the devils he talks about here. But I was unwilling to trust and obey the Lord. And that's how that song goes. Trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus. That's it. So look how he pleads here in verse 20. So he's talking to this person. Look what it says. He says, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. He's talking to this person that is resting in the fact that they believe in God. Hopefully that would be no one here, but I met a lot of them in prison. Do you have a Christian background? Well, I believe in God. 
And I got baptized when I was 14, and you know, and then there's pictures hanging all over their walls that you wouldn't want in your house. They prayed a prayer years ago. He's talking to that person, got baptized, believe the Bible is true, and they believe that as a result of that, when they die, they believe they're going to go to heaven. And James like, but will you know, do you really want to understand what I'm trying to tell you? Because will you know implies there's an unwillingness to know. The person's unwilling to face the truth. That's what he says. But will thou know, O vain man? And he's pleading with the person. Are you willing to learn, O empty man? That your faith, apart from works, is a dead faith, a worthless, useless faith. So your correct doctrine, anyone's correct doctrine, if it doesn't produce a living faith that shows forth in obedience to the truth, is worthless. Totally worthless. And he goes on and he says, well, let me show you by the life of Abraham what I'm talking about. And that's what we have, verses 21 to 24. And so he says by verse 21, he says, well, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? And, you know, it appears, if you know much about the Bible, that it, James, and this has been a huge debate. We're not going to get into all of it. <laughs> It'd take forever. But it's been a huge debate that James and Paul contradict each other here in verse 21. Because James says that Abraham was justified by works, doesn't he? That's what it says, doesn't it? And in Romans 4, 2, Paul wrote this, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has whereof to glory, but not before God. So he makes it sound like, well, he wasn't justified by works. Well, it sounds like Paul is saying, and Paul quotes the same verse back in Romans 4 that James quotes here in verse 23, where it says down there, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him or imputed to him for righteousness. And he goes on, Paul goes on to say, Abraham was justified by faith and not works. So let me ask you, who is right, James or Paul? Because Martin Luther didn't think the book of James should even be in the New Testament. He said it was an epistle of straw. James might be saved, but his works, that book of James is going to burn up. He didn't like it because his big emphasis was justification by faith. But I'm saying there really is no contradiction between the two. There really isn't. And here's why. And I do think you need to pay attention and listen to this. Part of the problem is that the word justified can be used more than one way. Just like we have words that can have ambiguous meanings. They can have more than one meaning. We can have a literal rock, or you can say, I was listening to rock. And people know that's a type of music. Words can be used different ways, and that's part of what's going on here. But also, the bigger thing is, Paul is talking about the initial faith of Abraham. God appeared to Abram and told him that he would have a son from his own bowels, and his offspring would be as the stars in heaven. And that's back in Genesis 15 that he told him that. And that leads up to this quote that both James and Paul have, Genesis 15, 6, that says, Then he, when Abraham heard that, then he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. At this point, this is what Paul's talking about. Here's the difference. It's in Genesis 15, 6, at the point he appeared to him and initially gave him the promise. At that point, it says that God counted Abraham just or righteous, not because of any works he had done. He hadn't had time to do any works, but solely because he had believed God or had faith in God. That's what Paul is talking about when he said Abraham was justified apart from works. And so were all of us. 
So when you initially come to the Lord, you're imputed the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You haven't had a chance to do anything. You just get make that initial saving confession. But God looks at you just like you're as righteous as his son, Jesus Christ, because he sees us in him. Okay, so that's what Paul is talking about. But James in verse 21 is talking about an event, the offering up of Isaac. That took place many years later and seven chapters later in the book of Genesis. Isaac was offered up in Genesis chapter 22. James would not argue with Paul. He would agree that Abraham was justified back in chapter 15. He'd have no argument with that. And that's not James's point in what he's writing here. But James would say that the 40 years, and it was 40 years between the time of Genesis 15 when God gave Abraham that promise and he first believed that, up until the time of what he's talking about here in verse 21 where Isaac is being offered and Abraham's Faith is being tested to see whether it's genuine. To see whether that faith that he had at the beginning was genuine to begin with. Now, God knew that, didn't he? He knew all along. He knew in Genesis 15, just like with us. He knew with all of us when we came to the Lord and gave our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows what sometimes we don't even, he knows whether our faith is genuine, doesn't he? And we're justified. A person's justified in that. But James is saying here, your works, though, are going to show whether that faith that you claimed you had then is real or not. And that's what he's talking about here. All James is saying is that Abraham's work of offering Isaac, it justified or demonstrated to be right when God accepted Abraham's faith to be genuine in the beginning. He's saying your faith because... I named you righteous and you're living righteous. Your works show that. That just proves that what I said here is right here. And that's what we have in 1 John 3, 7. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. So you don't earn a righteous standing with God, but as you do righteousness, it proves the fact that he counted your faith as righteousness, that that was genuine faith. Genuine faith will produce deeds or works or actions that line up with what you're saying is the point. Another point I want to make here is that Abraham was not ready in Genesis 15 to meet the test of offering up Isaac. Just like we talked about Daniel and the Hebrew boys the other day in chapter 1 versus chapter 3. He wasn't ready for that. His faith had to grow and mature. And if you know the story of Abraham, he even went through a period of doubt, didn't he? He's like, how's this going to work out? I'm getting older. The sun hasn't come. And he did. This was a traditional thing they did at that time. He says, I'll take my maid, Hagar, have a son by her, and this will be the heir. And he goes to present that before the Lord. And God had to tell him, he says, Ishmael is not going to be the one. Uh Uh-uh, Abraham. He says, your heir is going to come through Sarah. Sarah, and if you read the account of Genesis, it says he literally fell on his face laughing. Now, does that sound like Abraham's growing strong in faith? Ah, he's laughing, and he literally he fell on his face and laughed, and he said, shall a child be born unto him that is 100 years old? <laughs> and Sarah's 95, and she's going to bear a baby? <laughs> and he's laughing. And then he cried out, oh, that Ishmael may live. And you know why that is? It's the same reason we get in the trial and we're thinking, God, do I have to keep hanging on to you through this trial? There's another way out here. Oh, that Ishmael may live. You know why? Because Ishmael was easy. 
Ishmael's born living right there, and he came from his bowels. And God says, ah, that's not the way this is going to work. This is a promise that only I can fulfill. Ishmael was easy. Isaac was impossible, except by God. And the point I'm trying to make with that is, if you've ever struggled, and all of us has, because you're believing for something that seems impossible, and you've struggled with it, you've doubted at times, gone through a period, don't give up. Because God didn't tell Abraham, well, man, you laughed and I saw your doubt. It's all over. He didn't do that to him, did he? Abraham repented and he continued to walk and grow in his faith in that promise. And that's the point. So Abraham's initial faith in Genesis 15 tested and tested and tested for 40 years. And one act of obedience had to follow another that came from that initial faith. And finally, it came to maturity in Genesis 22 when he offered up Isaac. And that's what James is saying there. That is what fulfilled what was said back then in Genesis 15 when he offered up Isaac. And his faith was made complete or mature. King James says, perfect. The supreme test, you think about that test that he had to go through. He wouldn't have been ready for this in Genesis 15. Because God told him, you imagine, you've trusted God for this son and he started growing up and he's a handsome looking boy, he's a good boy, and this is God's promise to you and all of a sudden he tells you one day, you take thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom you lovest, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I tell you. Well, let's see. We know his faith at one point. He was struggling, doubting, laughing that this could happen. Well, how's Abraham's faith doing now? How's it doing now? You go back in your own, you can read Genesis 22. When Abraham and Isaac arrive at Mount Moriah, that's where God told him to go. And this is where this awful sacrifice is supposed to take place. Abraham tells the young men that were with him, he says, I want you to stay here with this donkey. And then, this is what the Hebrew says. You don't necessarily get it out of your Bible, but the Hebrew says this. As for me and the boy, we will go over there and we will worship and we will come back to you. So he used, three times, he used the first person plural. We, we, we. And if you listen to what all he said he was going to do, he said, we, the second one is we are going to worship and then he says, we will come back. Well, if you know what God told him to do between the second and the third we, you know what would have happened? That boy would have been laid on that altar. That sacrificial knife would have been plunged right into his heart, and it wouldn't have ended there. He had fire with him, remember? He was going to be a whole burnt offering. He had to burn the boy. So we're saying, how was Abraham's faith doing then after 40 years? Was that a living faith that he started with that grew and matured? Because his faith was that I'm going to kill this boy because God told me to. I'm going to burn his body because God told me to. But because of the promise that God has given me, I've seen him do one thing that's impossible. He is going to somehow supernaturally resurrect this boy and bring his body back like it was. That's where Abraham's faith was. You know how we know that? Hebrews 11 lets us into his head. That's the only reason we know it. It's not in Genesis. But read Hebrews 11:19. It'll tell you that. 
So Abraham wasn't ready for this test when he first believed God. His faith was genuine then, but it had to go through many tests and struggles. And that's what we're talking about. That's what those trials we were talking about in chapter one. That's what they do as you pass them, as you hang in there, produces endurance and it brings you into maturity. And we see that with Abraham had to be strengthened through his many acts of obedience till it brought him to that place, Genesis 22. And so his faith and his actions, they both had to work together. It wasn't just something up here, was it? It's what he had up here that got down in his heart and came out in his life. All of that combined, faith and works. And that's what he's looking, verse 22, that's what it's saying. He's, James says, well, can you see now how that faith worked together with his works and by works was faith made complete. It's all those tests and trials and struggles that he went through and seeing God's faithfulness that brought his faith, all those works, so to speak, that brought his faith to perfection. Faith is the starting point for all of us, that initial saving faith. And then what happens? You start hearing the word. And for a lot of us, for me, I mean, I sat under this type of teaching, like from day one, I got saved. It's a challenging message, isn't it? It wasn't just praise God that you got forgiven of your sins and try to be nice to people. It's been a challenging message since day one. But true saving faith, the tests start coming then, didn't they? And it wasn't the same for everybody. God says he'll not give you more than you can handle. Your tests are tailor-made, but the tests start coming. And that's what's going to show you whether your initial saving faith is genuine or not. And if it is, it will respond and overcome to the trials that come your way. And each test, each test that God brings to you will prepare you for the next one. That's what we see in the life of Abraham, the father of the faith. And in the end, if we pass our test and move on through, we'll have a mature, complete faith. So if you fail a few, it doesn't mean you're done. And that's why we have 30, 60, 100-fold Christians. God gave Abraham the faith he started with, didn't he? God gave it to him. He gave all of us our faith. Faith is a gift of God. And when he did that, here's what we need to see. When God gave Abraham that faith he started with, God had a goal for Abraham. He had a goal in mind for that faith. And what was that goal? Well, what do we see happening here in Genesis 22? The goal was that Abraham would develop such a deep relationship with God that he would be brought to the point where he would be willing to put God first in everything in his life. That was God's goal. And Abraham's faith brought him to the point he was willing to surrender his most treasured possession to God. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? He wants all of our heart. And then he'll give us all of him. That's what he's after. That's what he's been after since day one. He wants all of our heart. That comes through our faith and through our obedience of faith. And when Abraham did that, when his faith was to the point he willingly offered up Isaac, his son, his only son whom he loved, what does it say about him? Look at it says there in verse 23 at the end of that. It says, he was called what? The friend of God. God chose Abraham to be his friend. Abraham didn't choose him. It was all God's choosing. But that was his point, wasn't it? Wanted that relationship with him. A friend that would lay his life down for him because... The Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for Abraham. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Like Abraham, 
We have to walk with God through the tests that come our way. And remember, Abraham didn't have Genesis 22 faith in Genesis 15. So my exhortation is trust God where you're at, wherever you're at. And remember this. We talked about this with some brothers and sisters the other night. It's the lion and the bear that he puts in your path that are going to produce those tests of obedience that lead up to the Goliath, that lead up to your willingness to offer up your Isaac. That's the way it's going to work. God will slowly, it seems, bring us to maturity. It didn't happen with Abraham. He didn't become the father of the faith overnight. It's 40 years. God did a process and a work in him, some ups and downs along the way. But if we avoid all trials, and it's becoming more that way at any cost, we avoid trials. We're not going to trust the Lord for anything. We will never mature. All of us, we have to be willing. This is where the rubber meets the road, honestly. Act in your faith. Doing more than just saying whatever. That's where the rubber meets the road. And it will bring what appear to be risk. And people will let you know that. And the devil will let you know that. But... If it's true living faith in your heart that you're exercising, there are no risk with God. Was Peter really at risk getting out of that boat, walking on the water, as long as Jesus was there and asked him to come out? There was no risk there until he started doubting, and even then the Lord helped him back in. But what if Jesus wasn't there? What if he's just out in the boat and a storm comes up? He's like, well, I think I'll walk out in the sea. Well, that's a great risk. But with the Lord Jesus Christ there present and his promise and his presence, there is no risk. Amen? That's what faith is. Read Hebrews 11. It's filled with people that received a word from God. And they believed the word. And more importantly, they believed in the God that gave the word. That's where it's at. And many of them, as a result of that, they put their lives at risk. If not most of them. By their faith. And some of them even lost their lives. Turn back to Hebrews 11. And let's just look at the last part of it. Most people are familiar with the first part of it. Well, look in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 31. Look what it says. It says, and we'll talk about this sister here in a few minutes, but it says, By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms. They did things, they acted, subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. I'd say that'd be a little risky. Quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. I'd say that's kind of giving up your all for the Lord. Verse 36, and others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. And that is happening today. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us 
that they without us should not be made perfect. Wow, I mean, I'd say those people gave up a lot, didn't they? Gave up a lot. And we're saying that's what living faith will be willing to do. Amen? I didn't write all, I just read that. That's not my opinion about anything right there in Hebrews 11. We heard this years back, and it's still true, that faith, the acrostic is forsaking all, I trust him. And that means all. If you haven't forsaken all, it's not faith. It messes the spelling up, because you got to leave the A out, and it's fifth. And fifth isn't going to get you much. Amen? If you would, I'd like to end with John 5. The Lord just put this on my heart the other night, and I couldn't get away from it, and I'm thinking it fits in here. But if you turn back to John chapter 5, so we're still talking about faith that works. Let's read the first nine verses. John 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, And after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, of halt, of withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. And whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had now been a long time in that case, he said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? And the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed and walked and on the same day, it says, was the Sabbath. So you got to get the picture here. There's this pretty amazing thing to see. They have pictures of it, and the remnants are still in Jerusalem. It's just kind of torn down. But it had these five porches that surrounded it, and it was near what they call the Sheep Gate. And from this pool, there was an opening, not a big opening, not a huge opening, but an opening that went into the temple. And so the sheep would have been washed in this pool. That's where they were washed, in this pool, and then taken directly into the sanctuary. They got cleaned up, and then they took them in there to be sacrificed. But it's also a place where we're told what? We just read it, that a great multitude of impotent folk were crowded around. And just imagine this picture. There was all these people laying, crowded around each other, around this pool, hoping that they get a shot to get in there, laying there. And it says this about these people. Impotent, no power, without strength. But it says there was blind and there was halt. A halt means they were lame, lame in the feet. And also says in the King James that they were withered. That word for withered literally means a loss of moisture. And like a leaf will just wither. It's talking about a limb that becomes withered because it's paralyzed from lack of use. And these are all the people that are laying around this pool wanting to be healed. And so the upper class... This nasty pool the sheep are cleaned in, and these people are hoping to get healed. The upper class and those that were ceremonially clean would have nothing to do with this place. They would avoid it. But guess who didn't avoid it? Jesus. 
He went there and he comes to the pool and it says there's this man laying there that's an invalid. Been that way, it says, for 38 years. You talk about a frustrating life. He can't walk in all his hopes every time that he wants to be healed. He just can't get there fast enough. Dashed every time. 38 years he's been in that case. Time after time, he doesn't get healed. And Jesus, it says, comes and sees him lying there. For some reason, because he only did what the Father showed him, God led him to that man. And it says that he knew that he'd been there a long time. How did he know that? I think it was a word of knowledge. The guy could have told him, it doesn't say. But regardless, he knew that man had been there a long time. And he asked the man, wilt thou be made whole? Wilt thou? Do you want to be whole? Do you have a desire to be made whole? If the guy was a smart aleck, like me sometimes, he might have looked at him and looked at the Lord and said, well, what do you think? What do you think I'm doing here? Do, you know, do I want to be made whole? But he didn't say that. Instead, he says, sir, talks to him respectfully. It's like, it's not a matter of desire, but he says, I have no man to help me get in the waters and I am just never fast enough. No matter how hard I try, I can't get there. I'm trying, trying, and it doesn't work. Let me ask you something. Have you ever tried to get healed and it just doesn't seem to happen? You try to feel better. You try to get past the pain. You try, 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 and nothing works. Years back, one of the best tapes I heard was called How to Get Healed Without Trying. Because you don't get healed by trying to get healed. So it's not just trying. It's not just acting. That's not going to get you healed. And it's not going to bring your manifestation. You know, I went through this thing with my leg years back. I could not straighten my leg out to move that day. It was just about as severe pain as you could get. And I'd read all these books about how people would act their faith and all that. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm willing to, Lord, I'm going to act my faith. And I'd just fall down and just be rolling in pain. And I finally realized, you know, I am not going to make this happen on my own by my willpower, by trying. And that's what the Lord spoke to me. He says, you just need to trust me. It will happen in my time and in my way. And that's the way it is. So you just have to know you're healed. And when you know you're healed, that was the point of this, how to get healed without trying. When it's real faith and you know you're healed, you will know what to do. Because Jesus didn't tell every blind man to do the same thing, did he? And so you'll know what to do because the Holy Spirit in you will tell you what to do. Because Jesus is no longer here physically to tell you what to do. The voice of Jesus inside you will direct you. I heard it might have been on that same message. It might have been somewhere else. But that there was a man that was in bed, sick and on his back, couldn't get out of bed. And so he called for the elders of the church, James 5, and they came and they prayed for him, anointed him with oil in the name of the Lord and all that. And so that man decided, well, I'm just going to get out of this bed. And he'd just get out of bed and he'd just fall down and collapse and he'd have to pick him up and put him back in bed. You know, and finally the Lord spoke to him and said, it's going to happen in my time and way. You're not going to force the same, same kind of thing I was just talking about. But one day, the man's just trusting the Lord and the Lord spoke to him. He knew it was the Lord inwardly spoke to him and said, get out of bed and get dressed. And the man's thinking, man, I've tried that. He says, I can't do it. But he did it. 
He did it. He obeyed, and it worked. And as he acted his faith, because the Lord directed him that way, God's power met him. It's just like we're talking about the withered. It's like the man with the withered hand. He's got no power. He can't make that hand no matter how hard he tries. But when the word of the Lord comes, and there's power in that, then he says, stretch forth your hand. There's power in that. And when you act, then the power of God meets. That's how faith acts. James 5 says the prayer of faith shall heal the sick and the Lord will raise him up. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say when. It's going to be in God's time and God's way. I would hasten to add we should expect it now. You don't expect it in a week or a month or a year because that's when it'll never happen. You expect it now, but it's going to happen in God's time and way. It's all about obeying the voice of the Lord. Abraham, we just read about it, he obeyed God's voice when he told him to take Isaac to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. This wasn't a plan that Abraham just came up with on his own. God told him what to do, and he obeyed God's voice. In one of our main healing scriptures, do you know that's what it says? Exodus 15, 26, the first thing it says there, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and it ends by saying, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Read Bevington if you haven't read Bevington, because it's a great example of trusting the promises of healing. He taught and believed that healing was in the atonement. It was God's will. But when he would claim his healing, he'd seek the Lord would show him what to do or he would know what to do by the Holy Spirit would tell him. And it wasn't always the same. And sometimes he had to pray through, didn't he? But the thing was, his faith was a living faith. That has got to be the basis of it all. Amen. If it's not a living faith, you can act all you want to and it's not going to work. So Jesus asked the man, wilt thou be made whole? And you know what the man's answer was? Will I be made whole? He pointed to the pool. And he pointed to the fact that he couldn't get any man to help him. It's a lack of help. And you know what Jesus, in essence, said to him? You don't need that pool. And you don't need outside assistance. You don't need any of that. Isn't that what he said? Because Jesus didn't even answer that. What did he say? Rise. Take up thy bed and walk. He's telling him, all you need is a word from me. There's power in the Word of God that's anointed by the Spirit, and it will produce faith, and that faith will produce action. Jesus said, rise, take up thy bed and walk, and there was power in his words. Faith came by hearing the Word of God, and the actions followed because it says right there in verse 9, immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed, and walked. And that is how the God of the Bible heals through his word and the power of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 107:20 says, He sent his word and healed them and delivered them out of their distresses. Sent his word and healed them. Surely. Got it right up there. He's borne our pains and carried away our sicknesses, and by his stripes we are healed. And what did Jesus, what was his methods he used? Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, 
who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And what was his methods? The Holy Ghost and power and the spoken word. I think that's pretty much all I see with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. <laughs> so back to James. He concludes here in verse 26. He concludes by saying this. He says it one more time in case we didn't get it. For as the body without the spirit is dead, there is no life. It's just a corpse. He says, so faith without works is dead also. Today, let's trust God to deliver us from a dead faith with no actions and give us a living faith that acts in obedience to his voice. And then we'll see results. Guaranteed. Amen. I don't know how many of you remember this song. This song just started going through my mind. It's an old song, but I like this song. And just when he says, take up thy bed and rise up and walk, it reminded me of this song, Rise and Be Healed. I wish I could sing it. I wish somebody could play it and sing it because I like the song. I always did. But the words go like this. Has fear and doubt come against your mind? And has your faith been sorely tried? Just lift up your eyes. I think we heard this once today. Just lift up your eyes for here cometh your help. It is Jesus, and for you he has died. So rise and be healed in the name of Jesus. Just let faith rise in your soul. Rise and be healed in the name of Jesus. He will cleanse you and make you whole. And the second verse goes like this. And when, when by faith, you just reach out to him. Jesus will meet your every need. He will respond to the cry of your heart. He will touch you and set you free. So rise and be healed in the name of Jesus. Just let faith rise in your soul. Rise and be healed in the name of Jesus. He will cleanse you and make you whole. I got a guy that sings that pretty good on Spotify and I want to get it on a loop and just listen to it driving in my car for a long time. Because that's edifying to me. Because faith is a positive thing. And what Jesus will do for us is a positive thing. And I'm saying it's something that we can have confidence in. We just need to make sure we're diligently seeking him and spending time with him in his word, in communion. That's the three things John G. Lake says. He goes, I've met ministers. I met a guy that could preach a powerful word and God's blessing was on him. And he said, I heard him years later and he said he's preaching the same word. He goes, but something's missing. And he said, when I talked to this man, I found out he's neglecting the word. He's neglecting his prayer life. He's neglecting that communion with the Lord. And that's where the power comes from. And so we're wondering, where is the power? It's there. If we will all do that, we won't be void of any power of the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst. Amen. Because he wants to bless us. He does. He's not holding back a thing. Amen. <laughs> all right, let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, and I do ask you'll cause us all to draw near you and that you will draw near to us. That's a promise that we'll get to later in the book of James. And just trust, Lord, that you'll show us all that we can have a living faith and a faith that will be obedient to you in the trials you put our way and that we can trust you. Holy Lord, you have a plan for us just like you did for Abraham. And you want to bring us to a place where we're willing to 
to relinquish all to you, Lord, in love and give our lives to you, surrender all. And so I thank you, Lord, you'll do that work in our hearts to ask this word. Your word will have effect in all of us, Lord, and that we will be doers of the word and not just hearers only. That will be what characterizes us. We hear a word and we do it. Pray that for all of us, Lord, and I thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen.